Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. We're going to talk today with Sean McDowell about the doubts he went through as a young adult. Plus, we're going to talk about his PhD work on the fate of the apostles and the brand new updated evidence that demands a verdict on today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean is a gifted speaker, author, apologist, and scholar who travels all over the U.S. and the world talking about everything from hot-button cultural issues to hard evidence for the truth of Christianity. He's got a passion to equip the church and young people in particular to make the case for Christianity. He's an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola and is the resident scholar for Summit California. Sean still teaches one high school Bible class, which I want to ask him about in just a moment because that's pretty interesting. He holds a PhD in apologetics and worldview from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written or edited over 18 books, and most recently, he worked on the updated Evidence That Demands a Verdict with his dad, Josh McDowell. He's got a great website uh, that's just a tremendous resource for all kinds of articles, videos, and a brand new podcast called Think Biblically, and you can find all of that at seanmcdowell.org. So, Sean, I want to welcome you to the podcast, and I want to ask you about working with high schoolers. That That's really interesting to me. Why do you still do that? Why is that important to you? Well, I've always had a passion for the next generation. I gained that probably from my parents and just the way I'm wired. I love working with junior high and even more particular high school students. So I did it 10 years before I started teaching at Biola. And when the position came up at Biola, finished up my doctorate, there was the chance to stay here part time. And I just, I do it. You know, when I work with, when I talk with pastors and parents and I say, I'm not just a professor, but I'm in the classroom working with kids, you get a little respect, I think, for doing that. And it also just keeps it fresh for me. I'm always talking with students about what they think and believe and watch and how they see the world. So 
next year I can even have my son in class, which is fun. He'll be a high school oh, freshman. Wow. So that's a whole new wrinkle. But I, I just, it's the way I'm wired. I enjoy it. Well, in a moment, we're going to talk about the newly updated evidence that demands a verdict, which of course is one of the books your dad is most known for. But before we get to that, I want to ask you what it was like to grow up as the son of one of the greatest and most well-known defenders of the Christian faith, and then as a young adult, encounter some of your own doubts um, and, and just questions about what you've been taught and what you've believed all your life. What was that like for you? So to answer the first question, I've always known that my dad was kind of a rock star evangelist and apologist, for lack of a better term, but I didn't see him through that lens. I mean, I saw him first as a dad, as a husband, just as a person. And one of the things I always admired about my father is he's the same on stage as off stage. Mm. There is no Josh A and Josh B. He's the same enthusiastic, same passionate, same full of life no matter where you see him. Of course, he's not perfect. Nobody is. But I just have seen him as a, a dad first. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in a small town in the mountains of San Diego called Julian, kind of famous for gold mines and apple pies. So I didn't grow up with a huge church around me with people constantly putting pressure on me to live up to that. I was able to kind of escape from that a little bit, which I think was nice. And I appreciate my parents raising me in that that kind of setting. Uh, so I just honestly, I believed it made sense to me. I, I probably if somebody had asked me in junior high and high school why someone didn't believe, I'd say, well, clearly they just haven't read more than a carpenter or evidence that demands a verdict. Like, right. how hard is it? You know, and then, of course, you get into college. And now I think it's different for high school students because of social media and the Internet. They're exposed to these kinds of questions. And our culture has changed so much earlier but for me, it was, that was at the point where I really started meeting a lot of people, even though I went to a public school in high school, a lot of people with different worldviews, different belief systems that started to kind of challenge me. And I remember getting on the internet, this is like mid-90s, pre-Google, but you could search blogs. And the secular web had really begun responding chapter by chapter to a lot of my dad's material. Wow. They had historians and philosophers and smart people saying, Josh is wrong and here's why. And I knew my parents meant well, but it was really unsettling for me. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, gosh, what if they're wrong? What if it's another religion? What if God doesn't exist? And it wasn't just a head game for me. I remember really feeling the weight of that. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, I think I was about 19, that I was just going to tell my dad that kind of I was going through this period of doubts and we were in Breckenridge, Colorado and went out to get coffee or something like that. And I remember we we sat down and looked at my dad. And I said, Dad, I want to know it's true, but I'm not sure I'm convinced Christianity is fully true, not knowing what he would say because he's committed his life to defending and proclaiming this. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and goes, son, I, I think that's great. And he paused. And I remember thinking, did he hear anything that I just said? Like, I'm saying I'm not sure I buy all this stuff that you mentioned. And he said a few things. The effect of, you know, I did, I've raised you to seek after truth no matter what and to follow it. If Christianity is not true, don't follow it. He said, but I'm confident if you seek truth, you will either remain here or be led to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. And then, of course, he said, you know, your mom and I love you no matter what. And I, when I tell the story, I don't want to over-dramatize it because it's one piece of a much larger story and experience. But it was, it was pivotal for me for owning my own faith, for really having, I think, permission for my parents to go, you know what, I got to find out what I believe and ultimately based my life on that. 
Well, I love that you tell that story because I have a nine-year-old little girl who has a lot of questions. And she's sort of by nature this skeptic, not not a cynic. You know, she's just very smart. And I, I, I often recall this story when she'll, you know, we'll be reading through the Bible or something and she'll say, well, how do we know that really happened? You know, and as a parent, this kind of panic moment sets in. And I remember, wait, Josh McDowell just kind of said, that's good. That's good. You need to investigate. So I appreciate that story, which I think helps me and other parents. And I'm sure has helped you as a parent with your kids and their questions, because it can be scary, especially in this culture, to to parent kids who are having to walk through this stuff. But thankfully, there's a great resource to help parents and to help everybody, not just parents, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with this book, it was originally published in 1972. And ever since then, it has pretty much been the go-to resource for Christians who want to learn how to present evidence for their faith and to defend the claims of Christianity. And, you know, really the impact of this book is just immeasurable. There's been over 3 million copies printed worldwide. And so here we are 40 years later, and you and your dad, Josh McDowell, teamed up with over 30 graduate students and a dozen leading scholars to update the information in this book. So why did you feel the need to revise this classic work? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. There's actually quite a few reasons. And the most pressing one was he wrote it in 72, like you said, updated it 80s, early 90s, and then updated again in 1999. So by the time we started to talk about updating this thing, it had almost been two decades. So you think about how much changes in that. In particular, that's really when the internet became ubiquitous and started changing the conversation about evidence. So one reason was just we got to update this thing. It's been two decades. So other reasons were there's a ton more evidence that we had uncovered, whether it's manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, different arguments people had made. So we wanted to include that. We want to include out, take out some material that was dated. For example, the Old Testament section, really in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and maybe into the 90s, what's called the documentary hypothesis was a very important pressing issue Well, that's really not the issue being debated anymore. So the Old Testament section, we went to the historical Adam. We went to the existence of the patriarchs, the exodus, the conquest, the historical David. Like we walked through all the key people and events. So that section is entirely new. And then there were some other issues that we had to address, like the claim that Jesus didn't even exist or that Christianity is a copycat religion. I had done research on the apostles and their deaths. It was not in the first in, in the last update. So we added a chapter on that. We had a chapter responding to Bart Ehrman. He was not around writing. I don't even know how old he was in the late 90s, but nobody mm-hmm. knew who he was as a skeptic. So we wrote a chapter responding to some of his claims. So the landscape had just changed. And also, I think I was at a stage where I was developing a platform, could bring a new voice. It could be a father and son. And I think that we just got together and thought, you know, this would really add a unique flavor where someone can talk about all the evidence they want, but if their son believes it and their son embraces it, that just gives a unique kind of added credibility to it as well. Yeah, that's that's great. Now, you mentioned kind of new discoveries in archaeology, and you mentioned historical evidence for some of the patriarchs. Can you think of just an example of something that was discovered that really changed the game regarding the historicity of some of these, these Bible uh, characters? 
Well, one of the big evidences that we point to is uh, is the manuscript count that's been found. So it wasn't so much that we found shocking evidence for the existence of the patriarchs over the past couple decades. When it comes to that issue, although there is some evidence that has been found, the real issue is that just wasn't the question people were asking. And yet now it's become the question. So we had to address it and bring in some of the evidence that people have found for the patriarchs. Some of the evidence that really has come out, for example, are like the number of manuscripts and some earlier copies of manuscripts that just simply didn't exist in the past. So ironically, people think that the further we get away from the New Testament time, we're 2,000 years, that's going to get plus, the harder it would be to uncover the truth of what happened. It's actually the opposite. Mm. The further we get away, the more we find, the more we discover, the closer we are to actually reconstructing the words of Jesus himself. So the manuscript count, and the reason I'm talking about this, this is what my father gets most excited about. He first wrote evidence when he was trying to disprove Christianity and show that it was false, ended up being surprised by the evidence. Well, he traveled at this time to places in in Europe and the Middle East to see some of these manuscripts with his own eyes. So he just loves, and since then he's bought in some recent manuscripts, carries them around when he speaks. But one illustration he uses that we put in the book is that if you take the average classical writer and you put the handwritten manuscripts we have and you compile them up, they'd be about four feet. Mm-hmm. If you take the New Testament books, it'd be over a mile. Wow. Over a mile. And many of these manuscripts have been discovered in the last six months, year, two years, five years, decades, since evidence was last written in 99. Wow, that is really amazing. And for, for listeners who aren't familiar with how ancient documents are reconstructed, because with most ancient documents, we don't have the originals anymore. So there's a science called textual criticism. And in order to do good textual criticism, to be able to reconstruct these documents, you want as many manuscripts, handwritten copies as possible, and you want the earliest manuscripts. And so so what you're saying is if you piled up the, the New Testament manuscripts, is it just the New Testament or both? That would be a mile well, it's the New Testament. If you add the Old Testament and you add scrolls to it, oh, right. you would actually have about two and a half miles high, wow. which is just blows away any other ancient book, many of which people don't even question the reliability or textual transmission of. Right, exactly. So so what you're saying is that over the years, as evidence continues to pile up, it just makes a better and better case for the reliability of the New Testament documents. I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I, I actually asked, asked my dad because he first started researching this, trying to disprove Christianity in the 50s. Wow. So now to this year, I mean, that's like, what, I don't even know how long, 60 some years maybe that he has a perspective. He's 78. So really, it's almost six decades since wow. he's seen the landscape of scholarship change. And I asked him, I said, how would you, especially with this update, assess the evidence when you first started researching this in the 50s, first wrote evidence of 72, and now updating this in the 20th century? How would you compare the evidence? And the phrase that he uses, he says there's a tsunami of evidence, a tsunami of evidence. Now, my dad is never one for understatement anyways, (laughs) but you think about that. That phrase of someone who's seen this for six or seven decades is telling – In fact, I'll I'll tell you something, Lisa, that's interesting. That phrase stuck with me. So last week, 
I thought, you know, we're going to write an article from my dad, call it, there's a tsunami of evidence for the Christian faith. We submitted it to Fox News and they accepted it. We sold so many books in that week that evidence moved into number 16 on all books on Amazon, all books and two or three out of all Christian books. I'm only mentioning that because so many times people say we live in a post-truth culture. Truth doesn't matter anymore. That's a pretty clear indication to me that people are open to evidence. They're looking for it. They want reasons for what they believe, especially when we couch that article in my father's story about trying to disprove it and how uncovering the evidence really transformed him and being able to forgive his father and other people that hurt him. So yes, I think there's so much more evidence than there was decades ago. And yes, I think people are really open to it as well. Well, that's an interesting observation. And in a moment, I want to ask you about that, about the cultural mentality then versus now. And just from my own experience, I grew up, uh, my, my dad was a hippie musician and had come to Jesus in the Jesus movement in Southern California in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s. And he describes the prevailing culture as being really open to spiritual things. People were looking for God. They were seeking spiritual answers. They were trying Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and drugs and whatever they could find to help connect them to the spiritual realm. Whereas you find yourself now with kids growing up with this very skeptical culture. So what are you seeing as far as the culture goes, the mindset then versus the mindset now in regard to evidence? Do you think that people are open to evidence or even demanding it now? Yes, I do. So I've asked my father this question too, just because like earlier, he's had such a longer perspective and he spoke on about 1200 universities around the world. And recently I said, how has the response to evidence changed over really late 60s when you started doing this? And the way he described it is kind of 60s into the 80s and maybe early 90s even some, you present evidence for the resurrection, reliability of scriptures, deity of Christ. And people would say, give me more evidence. That's not true. And they would challenge the truth content of what he was saying. Hmm. So the assumption was there is a truth and if there's evidence, we'll follow it. But then it started to shift where people would say things like, well, that's bigoted. What right do you have to say that? And it shifted more towards an emotional spectrum about somebody's right to speak something towards things like tolerance. And now people talk about inclusion and not hurting people's feelings. So there's been a shift, really, when he first wrote evidence that people assume there's truth. We can know it. We follow it. Truth matters. Let's debate it. Let's dialogue about it. To now people say, well, truth is oppressive Mm. and truth is just decided by those who win. And you can't really know truth. It's just your feelings. So there's a temptation in light of that to just stop and say, well, we just have to tell our story and we just have to give people experience. I think that's a colossal mistake. Now, do we need to tell stories? Absolutely we do. Do we need to show people how they can experience God? No question about it. But because people are made in the image of God, we will always care about truth, even though we might suppress it, but we're truth seekers. That's what it means. That's why Jesus said, love God with your mind. We are made in his image and we want to know and follow after truth. So a recent study, interestingly enough, came out in January. Barna's study with Impact 360 on Generation Z, 46% of Gen Zers, basically those maybe five to like 20 or 25 in that range, 46% said that they are open to evidence 
for issues of faith. 46%. In fact, not even just open for it, want evidence for what they believe. So there's a lot of nonsense about feelings. There's a lot of things people will charge. So in the book Evidence, we added chapters at the end specifically on, is there such a thing as truth? How do you know truth? Uh, Can there be truth in history? And we respond to all these claims because when evidence first came out, you didn't even need that. People assume there's truth, but now they question it. So we have to clear all that away. And then oftentimes we can give the evidence. It's like you have to do apologetics to get to apologetics, to get to the gospel in a way. That's right. Well, this is really just an epic work. Uh, and And I think it can be probably intimidating for some people. It's, it's over 700 pages, but I really like to view this book as just a great resource that every family can have on their bookshelf. So for example, if I go and check my Facebook page one morning and someone posts an article or just a claim that Jesus never existed, for example, I can pull out my evidence that demands a verdict, hop on over to the subject index, and there it is, Jesus, historical evidence of, which is going to take me to page 143, where you have all these uh, sources listed. And what I love about the way that this book is organized, uh, Sean, is that it's it's not just sources, but you also categorize them according to their value. Uh, so you've got some of the sort the the non-Christian sources for Jesus' existence having little or no value. Then you list some that have limited value. Then you list some that actually have significant value. And I want to ask you about that because sometimes I will use Josephus as a source for the historical reliability of Jesus. And every single time, without fail, somebody will come on and say, no, Josephus is totally discredited and you can't use Josephus if you want anyone to take you seriously. How would you respond to that? Well, what I would say is, so you're claiming Josephus is discredited. What's your source from the leading scholars who don't consider him a reliable source? I, look, practically speaking, whenever someone makes a claim like Josephus being discredited, that person has the burden of proof to support that claim. So I'm going to call him on it first and say, can you tell me what leading scholars you're referring to and what journal articles you have to show that Josephus is not a reliable source? I'd put the burden of proof on them. And then second, I would like you have an evidence. We have leading Jesus scholars and these, yes, many of them are conservative, but they're not all just conservative. As we go through evidence, we don't just cite William Lane Craig and N.T. Wright and Gary Habermas, although we cite them. We cite people all over the historical and theological spectrum. And when it comes to the historical Jesus, it is such a minority for people to reject that he exists and a minority for people to completely mm-hmm. reject the value of Josephus. Now, you can't get to all the facts around Jesus just from Josephus. There are some legitimate questions people have raised, and we shouldn't overstate the value of Josephus, but we also shouldn't understate it. I think there's good reason to believe that Josephus referred to the historical Jesus, not to mention there's a second reference to the historical Jesus being the brother, James, the brother of Jesus, which scholars almost unanimously accept. And I know that because that's a reference tied to the death of uh, James, and I studied that in the Fate of the Apostles. So I looked at all the scholars, and the vast majority accept that as legitimate. So at least one is legitimate, and if that is, that also weighs into the passes on Josephus as well. Right, and I think it's so important, too. I, I, I love the way that it's organized to help the reader think through these things, because 
For example, in the case of Josephus, often what the skeptics are responding to is, you know, there's a, there's a quote floating around from Josephus that is probably not authentic. It's been interpolated and kind of expanded and made to be a little bit fantastical. So then other people may use that quote, and then people say, well, just, you can't trust Josephus. But there's actually a version of that quote that many to most scholars believe has an authentic core. So I think we can end up talking past each other because someone's assuming I'm using something that's interpolated or this or that, and therefore think Josephus is discredited altogether, which is why I'm glad you brought up that second reference, because it's even if you throw out the other one, you still have him referencing the brother of Jesus. So this is all stuff you'll learn if you read the book. Well, I, I hope they will. And here's, here's another tip that I do. When somebody says, well, it's interpolated, we can't use it, I just like to ask questions. If I have time, I don't waste time, to be honest with you, on the internet with people who just want to pick a fight and don't have a conversation, whatever the issue is. I don't have time for it. But if someone's genuine and they're having a fair conversation, even if they push back, great. I'll simply say, what is your criterion for how you trust a source and whether it's useful or not? I'm telling you, Lisa, I asked so many people that question. Almost nobody has a criterion. They don't know. And then if they don't have a criterion, then I go, then how can you so quickly dismiss Josephus? I mean, it's just amazing. Learning to ask a few good questions based on the very chapter that you're talking about can help people have conversations about these things so much in a much more fruitful manner. Well, that's well said. And I, I want to ask you, uh, just I'm curious, how long did these revisions take? How long were you were you working on these revisions? Oh, gosh. The contract almost took two years, which is I won't bore you with the details on that. But the writing, by the time we started, it came out in print, probably was around three years, somewhere between yeah. 2014 and 2017. And this was probably more work than anything I've done as much, probably about close to my dissertation, managing, researching, writing, editing, communicating. It was a massive, massive undertaking. And to be honest with you, I really wanted to get it right because I know how many people trust this as a resource and use it. So we were double, triple, quadruple checking our quotes and sources, doing our best to get things right. That's great. I love to hear that. You mentioned before that you added a chapter uh, in Evidence That Demands a Verdict on the fate of the apostles. Now, as far as I understand, that is actually the subject you did your PhD work on. Is that right? That's right. So when I first started teaching apologetics at church, I was giving evidence for the resurrection. This was several years ago. And I would say something along the lines of, you know, the disciples couldn't have been lying about witnessing the resurrection of Jesus because every one of them were tortured and killed for that belief. And nobody would die for what they knew was a lie. This is a very common argument that apologists use. And then a few years ago, I attended the EPS conference, and I went to your talk about your work on the fate of the apostles. And in that talk and in your, your book, you suggest that apologists need to reframe the argument a little bit. So and that's actually shaped how I and many other apologists have gone about defending the evidence for the resurrection. So walk us through that. Take us through why you chose that topic in the first place, the fate of the apostles, and then how you came out on the other side and said, hey, we need to word this just, we just made it, need to make a tweak on this argument a little bit. So I had started a PhD program in about 2010, 
and I needed a dissertation topic. I was going to do theistic evolution, but it became overwhelming philosophically, historically, theologically. And I was actually in Berkeley. We had an atheist come in and speak to our students on one of the trips that Brett Kunkel had set up. Jay Warner Wallace was there. And this atheist, a friend of mine now, argues that Jesus didn't even exist. And one of my students goes, well, if he didn't exist, why would all the apostles die as martyrs? And he pauses. He goes, how do you know they died? Give me evidence for any of them that they died because of their conviction. I kind of sat there and was like, you know what? I've taken this second hand from other people. I don't really know. And my students are looking at me like I'm supposed to know the answers. So that night I'm talking with Jim. I'm like, do you think this is a good dissertation topic? And of course, Jim, the detective is like, I just bought two full boxes of books on this. I was going to study this myself. You go for it. Gives me two boxes of books, which in the end, of when it was all said and done, ended being a drop in the bucket of the amount of research you have to do on a dissertation. But I thought, gosh, I've heard this argument growing up. I could make a contribution. It's interesting. So I just started tracking down everything I could, even in other languages, assessing what's the quality and quantity of evidence. And as I said earlier, I had to actually come up with a criteria of how we would assess the historical evidence and what probability scale I would put the apostles on. And to simplify things, basically I came to the conclusion that we have confidence, a high degree of confidence, that at least four of the apostles, including James who was not one of the 12, and Paul, who was not one of the 12, died as martyrs. I think two of them, we have a at least better than average case could be made, Thomas and Andrew. The rest, I think the evidence is late, it's contradictory, and we really don't know what happened. Now, I don't think this undermines the heart of the case, because really their death as martyrs or alleged death doesn't prove that it's true. It just proves that they're sincere. So the bottom line is we know that the earliest records we have, the apostles believed because they were eyewitnesses. They believed Jesus rose from the grave. They're all willing to suffer and die for this conviction. There's no evidence any of them recanted, and we know that at least some of them died as martyrs. That doesn't prove the resurrection is true, but it proves they weren't lying. It proves they didn't make it up. It proves that they really believed it and were sincere and were willing to pay the highest price for that sincerity. That's one piece of a larger resurrection argument that, as you said, we have to get it right. Now, that academic book is uh, with Rutledge, 2015. It's like a hundred plus dollar book. I had no control over that. So in evidence, like maybe I could sum it all up in one chapter that just for apologists, busy people who don't want to read a dissertation turned <laughs> academic book could use. And I think we did that in about 10 to 12 pages, just laid out the argument, what we know, give the sources for people to track down. So that's actually one of my favorite chapters in the updated evidence. And have you considered writing a lay-level book that something that would be more than a chapter, but not quite as complicated as the scholarly book? You know, I'm currently keeping a ton of articles and research stored away. So I'm working on a book with Jay Warner. I want to update a book I wrote called Ethics 12 years ago. And then I think after that, I might jump in and do a lay book on this. So it's probably about two or three years out, but it's on my list. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. So basically what I'm hearing you say is that rather than saying that every single apostle and disciple was tortured and killed for what they believed, it would probably be a bit more accurate to say that they were willing to be tortured and killed for what they believed. And we have good evidence, at least on three or four of them, that that is actually what happened. Did I get that right? 
Yeah, no, I think you got it right. What I've struggled with is it's easy to say they all died as martyrs. They weren't lying. Christianity's true. But that's just not that really would be easy. Though. Wouldn't that be great no, if it was that it's easy? So, it's so much easier. So I've struggled to find like one line that captures it. And I just don't know that we can. Mm. So really, I guess if I had to have one line, I would say the apostles believed they had seen the risen Jesus and they were all willing to suffer and die for that conviction. And we have good reason to believe that some of them did. If I remember correctly, you're saying there's pretty good historical evidence for Paul and Peter. Is that, would you say those are the top two? Yeah, I think Peter's probably number one. The evidence okay, we have is early, one. it's consistent, and it's unanimous. Was Peter crucified upside down? So I think at best we conclude that that is possible. Here's why. The earliest reference to him being crucified upside down is in a book called The Acts of Peter, which is an apocryphal account filled with legends that we know didn't happen, but is based around a historical core of Peter going to Rome and being crucified upside down. Well, this book is written A.D. 180 to 190. So towards the end of the second century, it's much farther removed. And what's interesting is if you ask anybody why was Peter crucified upside down, the story is that he did not want to be crucified in the way that Jesus was, so he requested that the Roman guards crucify him upside down. Well, as I thought about that, I started to think, really? Do you really think the Roman guards took requests about how you <laughs> wanted to be crucified? How would you like to be crucified? And I know I'm making light of it, but it's actually kind of crazy if you mm -hmm. think about it historically. Now, in that text, that has nothing to that, that's not the reason. If you read the earliest text, again, the Acts, of, uh, the Acts of Peter, he's turned upside down because the world is turned upside down because of sin. And he can actually see the world as it really is. And as he is crucified, it will help turn the world right side up, just like Jesus' death would. You don't hear the idea of somebody being crucified upside down that's attributed to Peter because of humility until centuries later after that. So – could it happen? There is some historical precedent for people being crucified upside down. But given that the earliest report is late, it's theologically based, and there's some parts about it that are somewhat unbelievable, I think at best it's historically possible. Um, in fact, I'm leaning more and more as I think about this to being unlikely, but, but it's possible. So when you share something like that at a conference or at a church— I would imagine that that can be a little bit rattling to some Christians who have, you know, have based maybe, because that legend gets told a lot, that Peter was crucified upside down as this victorious thing. Um, does that just really bum people out <laughs> to learn that that's probably not true? You know what, Elisa? A pastor said to me when I was in the middle of my research, he paused, he goes, man, you're going to make liars out of all of us. <laughs> and that hit me. I was like, that is not my goal. I mean, oh my goodness. And certainly when you talk, so many people I've talked to from India hold dear to these traditions about Thomas going there. I'm not trying to unsettle the apple cart, mm -hmm. make anybody into a liar. And I think I've modified this by saying, look, I've used this argument uncritically. I'm the one who's helped make this popular. So if anybody is guilty, it's me. I just feel the weight like I got to get this right. So I think when I phrased it that way that I've made mistakes too and truth matters, I think it gives people permission to just go, okay, 
all right, let's let's see where the evidence leads. And also saying that we can still make the argument, we just have to modify it a little bit. Right. Let's talk about James, because that's the one for me that when, you know, when I used to teach resurrection evidence uh, years ago, I would tell the story that I think it's, is it a third or fourth century story? Is it, I'm not going to say this right, but is it Hegesippus or I think it's Hegesippus. Hegesippus. Okay. I'm terrible with pronunciations, but I'm sure you've read that account, you know, where this, this dramatic account of James being thrown from the temple, the top of the temple. And then, you know, uh, with the, um, now I can't remember exactly, but it's just this amazing where he just, to his dying breath, all this is happening and he won't deny Christ. And, but there's also an account from Josephus on James to where it's just a little bit less fantastical. And in, in the Josephus account, is he, is he, that he's stoned? Is that what so, it is? So let me take a step back. You have three James that I've studied, which is one thing that makes this difficult. James, the son of Alphaeus, a, a minor apostle. You have James, the brother of Zebedee. I'm sorry, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. His martyrdom is actually included in Acts chapter 12, right at the beginning of the chapter. So that's one I think we have solid historical evidence for. The James you're referring to is James, the brother of Jesus, who is not one of the 12, but is an apostle because he saw the risen Jesus and he becomes the head of the early church. Now, James is unique because he's the only one for which we have an early uh Jewish slash secular source in Josephus in the 90s referring to his death. And I think there's good reason to take that historical. Well, in that one, it just describes that he's taken away and he's he's stoned to death. Well, you look in the account in Hegesippus, which is actually from the mid to late second century, but it's preserved by um, – oh, my mind just went blank – Literally in the fourth century, the main church historian, holy cow. Eusebius? Uh, thank you, Eusebius. It, like the obvious church historian in the fourth century records uh, the account that you're describing. And in that one, it's much more flowery. He's put up on the top of the temple. He's thrown off. He's beat with a club and he's stoned to death. So I think what's going on is there's actually a possible way to reconcile the two of those together. Um, in the way that they would stone people to death with some flowery hagiography added in the later account of Hegesippus. So I, I think we also actually have Gnostic sources for James, which is very interesting. You have Christian, Gnostic, mm. and you have a Jewish source, all generally agreeing, broadly speaking, on the way that he died, even though some exaggeration may have found its way in in later accounts, which actually tells me that there's good reason to think that there's probably a historical core there about the way that James died. Well, that's great. And, and I think, you know, it's always important. And I even had to check my own heart because I really like the flowery one. Right. You right. know, I like, I like all those details <laughs> and, and I think it's just important to always keep truth at the forefront and, and that will guard against unnecessary skeptical claims that will come and, and, and push back in that sense. So I appreciate your work uh, so much on all of that, and it's helped me quite a bit in how I frame uh, my arguments regarding the resurrection. And you know what? Can I, can I say one thing that I think is, yeah. might be interesting to listeners? I, even though there's flowery stuff added in these later accounts, it doesn't necessarily mean they're all false. So there's an account on the beheading of Paul from the mid to end of the second century where milk comes out of his neck when he's beheaded. 
in my dissertation, I wrote that off as clear kind of just mythology that's added in for some theological purpose. Why well, had a doctor contact me and send me a link to an article where there are medical accounts where a milk-type substance actually secretes from the neck when there's a certain kind of trauma that somebody experiences. That doesn't prove the event that that really happened to, to Paul, but it gave me pause. I was like, huh, maybe some of these accounts, there really could be some truth to them. So that's the difficulty in doing these studies. What is added in, what is not, and trying to have charity on both sides. But ultimately, you're right. What is the truth and what can we know ultimately should be our standard. That's great. Well, let me close with this question. On your website, you have a section called Lessons from My Father. And uh, why don't you share with us one of the most significant or memorable things that you learned from your dad? Oh, my goodness. That's that's really tough. I, basically, <laughs> what I would do is I would pick a topic and I just interview my father three or four questions and then transcribe it into a blog. So about what's, family. What's one of your favorite? What's one of your favorite uh, blogs or, or exchanges you had on on that uh, particular part of your website? You know, I could talk about parenting. I could talk about. I'll tell you one that comes to my mind just because I love. I love to speak and I share this one is I asked my dad, you know, give me advice. The very first time I spoke, he goes, son, I'll give you three words of advice, stories, stories, stories. He goes, tell stories. People love stories. They remember stories. And then you sprinkle truth in around the stories. That was two decades plus 20 years ago. And I've never forgotten that. It's just it was really meaningful. And there was another one. I'll tell you a second one where I just asked him. We did one called A Worldview of Aging. I said, Dad, you're coming up on 80. How do you how do you think differently at this stage in your life? He said, you know, I think about heaven a lot more than I used to. He said, second, what gives me joy is that I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I don't live with guilt. Mm. I don't live with guilt. I don't have burdens I've carried in my life. I don't have regrets. I thought, what a great way as you get older, whatever that looks like, to just not lose your joy, keep a clear conscience before the Lord. And he talked about keeping his passion. And I thought, what a great example, no matter what you do in life, to follow. So those little blogs are just lessons I've learned from my dad. That's great. Well, that's great advice. And I can speak for many listeners in saying thank you so much for all the work you do and your dad both and together and uh, the the contribution that you both have made to just building up the faith of so many people is immeasurable and inexpressible. So, so thank you so much for all that you've done. The book is Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the website seanmcdowell.org. Take advantage, go to Amazon, grab the book, or I'm sure is it available on your website as well, Sean? Both. Yep. Both. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on and we'll talk soon. Hey, thanks for having me. By the way, I'm a big fan. I've been following your blog, following what you're doing in your podcast. You're doing really good work. Keep it up and be encouraged. Thank you. That is encouraging. <laughs> if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my weekly podcasts and blog posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.